Hi, I want to welcome you to Growing Nimble Families, where we encourage the celebration of school-age kids. My name's Melissa. I hope this show is a place where mothers like you can safely explore a slower, simpler and playful lifestyle so that you can get to the heart of what your family needs to thrive both now and in the years to come. On the show today, we're talking about something really topical. It's the end of the school year here in Georgia. The same thing happens probably the last few weeks of school wherever you live. The kids are testing, getting report cards that sum up their entire year, end of year parties, and the parents are invited to all the field trips, sports days, field days, concert, award celebrations, and honors recognitions. Sound familiar? It's pretty full on as a time for emotions and emotions run high very mixed sometimes they're really happy sometimes they're really sad and you have to manage all of that and if you have more than one school age kid you can find that in your household you are managing many different feelings all at the same time as well as full on tiredness being the end of school our guest today jessica Leahy, is an educator writer speaker and author of the new york times best-selling book The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. During our interview, we talk about so many different things, but Jessica talks about why she wrote the book, what the science says about motivation and celebration, what the science says about paying for grades. Should you pay for grades or shouldn't you? We get into talking about report cards and what to do if you have teacher interactions where you go in and you speak to the teacher what we've seen, what we do, we talk about that. Some of our tweens and teens don't talk as much as we'd like them to do about school and their struggles. And sometimes we don't listen as much as we should do about some of those things. But they do get to talk to Jessica. She shares her answers to a really important question. She asks kids all the time, what would you most like your parents to know? And she tells us some startling answers. This was amazing to hear and really made me think about some of the things that we do in our house and we get into a lot a lot of other things as well so stay tuned and listen to her interview today i'm talking to jessica Leahy. she is an educator writer speaker and author of the new york times best-selling book the gift of failure how the best parents learn to let go so their children can succeed I'm excited to have you on the show today talking about middle school and secondary school students. I love this age group. Middle school is the best. (laughs) Yes, exactly. There's so many things that are going on, though, when they get to middle school. It can be a little harder work for them. Things are graded. Um, They have to learn to study. Then, of course, there's that spanner in the works called puberty that just blossoms. Um, or they have to learn. They have to learn to deal with, you know, which how to pick the books that they need for which classes, and how to deal with lockers and strategy for getting from point A to point B. It's there's so much in the mix for middle school kids. It's a wonder that they make this through the entire, you know, day intact. Oh, exactly. And so I was I was excited to see that you'd written a book called The Gift of Failure. And being able to actually talk about the mistakes and the learning that's happening and being able to support Mm -hmm. parents through this. So what led you to write a book like this? Well, I've been a teacher for a long time, almost I'm heading into my 20th year. And 
Um, I actually never expected to be a middle school uh, teacher. I'd taught high school for a long time. And um, when I got to teaching middle school and realized, you know, what an incredibly rich learning environment it is, not just obviously for the academics, um, but for everything else, the executive function and the social learning and all that sort of stuff, um, what I was getting a little bit... um, I was getting a little bit angry with the parents of my students because there were all these incredible learning opportunities and, um, you know, the parents would rush in and rescue them or run interference uh-huh. or and, – and, you know, I was sort of on this teacher high horse where, you know, I – they were they were messing with the learning and you know that was really making me angry and i felt like it was really sort of stunting their social learning but then at the same time i found out that um i was i had this inkling that it was also interfering with their ability to learn um you know academically as well and mm-hmm. and as pissed off as i was getting with my students parents i had to come to the realization that i was doing the exact same thing to my own children i have two boys one who just started college and one who's in eighth grade and um uh, as i mentioned in the book you know i had a kid who really couldn't do some pretty basic things because i had always run interference for him it you know it became really important to me not only to help my students be excited about learning for the sake of learning and understand that all these you know, moments during the day when I was holding them accountable for, you know, forgetting their stuff or not knowing how to handle a calendar, um, that all of that was leading toward, you know, a, a greater goal for learning for my students. And then, of course, I had to I had to deal with the fact that I had to unmess up my own kids <laughs> as well and learn how to be a better parent. And, you know, that's really that's a hard thing to face. You know, it's, yeah. it's easy to, to sort of be on your high horse and condemn the parents of your students for over-parenting and being too directive and um, using extrinsic motivators to, you know, sort of um, get them to do just about everything. But then when it comes to your own parenting, that's a hard one to face. And yes. so, you know, the book is written from that dual perspective, and I was extremely invested in figuring it all out, just, you know, even selfishly for my own kids. Yeah, I understand. I, you mentioned the word motivation, so let's go there. Mm-hmm, as, a par- sure. as a parent, if you have a child who's not doing well in school academically, and it's nothing mm-hmm. to do with the other issues that can come up with, that can mm-hmm. come up at the time, when I ask around and I hear what other people are saying, they have a tendency to say, "We'll just pay them for their grades." And yeah. I know you have an opinion about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, for, well, and we can even back up and talk about paying kids for, you know, for anything. I, I recommend the book uh, The Opposite of Spoiled by Ron Lieber a lot because he talks a lot in there about, um, you know, why we give kids money, and that's to learn about money and budgeting and all that stuff, and conflating it with things like being a part of the household and, uh, you know, having household duties and supporting people in the family or learning that we really screw up, um, number one, our kids' perceptions of why we need to be doing these things. And also we, you know, conflating it with money sort of um, undermines the kids' likelihood that they're going to want to do the thing over time because we have this, we have really, really good research over like 40 years showing that when you give kids things like money or stuff or when you control them in any way, even if it's, um, you know, grounding them if they get low grades or being on the portal constantly and and looking at their grades and then, you know, threatening them about their grades, all of that stuff undermines their interest in wanting to do the thing itself, which is learn. 
And I know that sounds crazy, Pollyanna, like, ooh, yeah, so they're all going to want to learn just for the sake of learning if we don't pay them. <laughs> but I think the point is, is if we're trying to keep kids really invested in learning, that the one of the worst things we can do is pay them for their grades. And all of the research on extrinsic motivators show that it just doesn't work over the long term. It undermines motivation over the long term, and it undermines creativity over the long term. And so... You know, the the tricky part is that extrinsic motivators seem like they work in the short term because they do. They work in the short term and they trick us. So, um, so yeah, just keeping in mind that they don't work over the long term and that they, you know, I say it pretty plainly in the book. I say if you want your kids to not want to learn math, pay them for their math grades. It's it's really pretty simple. Um, And I know that's hard to hear because we're so used to, sticker charts and here's a dollar for this and a dollar for that but it's true it's really true and and we have like i said 40 years of research and studies about those studies you know checking to make sure that those studies are really good quality studies and they are yeah so well, what then, we need to stop doing it exactly i i think the the opposite end of that spectrum is you know those children that are motivated they are self-motivated mm-hmm. and you're proud of them and they've come mm-hmm. home and they're showing you a report card or an, mm-hmm. an end of year assessment and it's good you know they might be mm-hmm. honest students they might be the mm-hmm. elusive you know hundred percenters you know whatever mm-hmm. it is what do you do about those children to show your recognition as a parent uh, well for me I mean it's so interesting because you know I had to wean myself off of you know wanting to see the report card and scanning it and sending a picture of it to the relatives and you know <laughs> yes. and the thing is, I am, pre- you know, when my kids do well and my kids jump through all the hoops, and I think first we've got to back up and say, you know, we have to acknowledge the fact that grades that come home on the report card are not necessarily a really good, uh, a good judge of learning, a good, um, sorry, a good measure of learning. They're a really, really good measure of playing the game. And right. as a teacher, I have lots and lots of kids who are just so good at playing that game that, you know, getting good grades is something that comes much more easily to them. Um, kids who aren't as interested in playing the game may not necessarily do as well in their classes. So we need to keep in mind that especially letter grades are a really quite a poor um, indicator of learning, um, especially the way we tend to apply them. So leaving that aside, the conversation that I try to have with my kids constantly is about process over product. We're constantly talking about how learning is going, um, you know, how, what did you do to, to figure that out? What did you do to, you know, get that grade if, we want, if, if the kid wants to sort of focus on the, the grade as a, as a topic? Um, you know, my kids know, especially now, that I am all about the process of learning, and if a low grade comes in, that could be an indicator that learning isn't going well, and so let's talk about that. Let's talk about not blame on you didn't study enough or the teacher did something poorly, but let's talk, let's go into a conversation with the teacher about, you know, how possibly that, that grade could be an indicator of something going wrong with the learning or the way it's being taught. That's the reason that, you know, assessments, the way we do them currently, like testing, the way we do it currently um, aren't also are sort of not the best way to do things because testing is testing one end point as opposed to how the learning is going all along um, as we go along day to day. And, and 
keeping an eye on where learning is going day to day would be a much better indicator of, of, of learning than one big grade at the end of the semester. So I'm, I'm sort of big on the process side. Anytime a, a teacher or a kid wants to talk constantly about the scores and the grades, I'm always about bringing it back to the process. What's actually happening with the learning? How do you know you're learning that? What do you know and what do you, we're really bad at metacognition, which means knowing what we do and don't know. So tell me about this. What do you think you know and, and let's figure out where the holes are in your learning. So process over product. Yeah, that, that sounds really um, a nicer way of talking about what's going on rather than just focusing on the, the end point. Although as a parent, how do you do that in, the, in school? So how would that look like in school if you were going to go in and talk to a, a teacher? So when I, go in, when I go in personally and go and have parent-teacher conferences, first of all, I'm always hoping it's going to be a student-led parent-teacher conference because those are my favorite. I think they teach kids um, self-advocacy. They teach kids to sort of be articulate and talk about learning as opposed to the grades themselves where they're – because a really good student-teacher, parent-teacher conferences that are led by students – they're given the opportunity to talk about their weaknesses and their strengths, and I think that's invaluable. Um, so, but, but given you know, that not every place does that, <clears throat> I'm lucky in that my school, kids' school does, I'm going to constantly talk about, okay, well, I'm hearing a lot of frustration from my kid about math, so can we talk about why he's not enjoying math or he's feeling like it doesn't apply to him or he's not, or if I hear him say, God forbid, um, I'm just not good at math. How can we address that as an issue um, and how can we talk about the learning itself? And I am interested in the grades, obviously. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping my kids, you know, I have one kid in college and I have another kid that I'm hoping will go to college too. Um, so that has to be part of the conversation. But at the same time, I could focus on the grades or I could focus on the actual learning, the is he developing math sense, for example, or is he learning how to express his own voice in his, in his writing? And if there's small issues that can be dealt with about, you know, the grading part, like it, maybe my kid's forgetting assignments or my kid's, um, you know, making some silly errors with not uh, paying attention to the negative sign in his math problems, then we can talk about attention and we can talk about strategies for, for how he can remember that. But I'm really, really more interested when I have a conversation with the teachers about how's my kid learning? What's, what does he yeah. know and what does he doesn't know? What does he not know? What are the weaknesses for him this term? What does he need? What do we as parents need to support in him so that you know, once he goes off into high school next year, he's going to be better able to manage his learning and his uh, stuff and his um, assignments, especially long-term assignments, because, yes. oh, my gosh, freshman year <laughs> of high school is a disaster for that. Yes. So, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly talking with the teachers. It drives them crazy, but I'm constantly talking about, you know, so at, what do we do next to support him? Not Let's not go back in time and say, you know, um, here's all the things he's doing wrong. How can I help him going forward? Right. No, that makes absolute sense. I, I was thinking that we had progress reports um, last week and my sons were saying how much in their class everybody was talking about how much money that they were going to make. And, you know, mm -hmm. some of them were hiding the fact that, <clears throat> oh, no, my parents are going to know for the now that I'm not doing very well because, you know, they don't all log into the portals and, and mm -hmm. check what's going on. And they were saying that they didn't know how to respond 
to their friends who were talking all about all of this type of stuff. And, and I feel the same way sometimes when I talk to friends who are obviously the ones paying the children to do the same right. type of thing. You know, right. how do you change the, the interaction and the mindset through conversation without seeming as if you're being mean to your kids yeah. for, <laughs> for not celebrating in the same way or, or give, giving well, out? I'm I'm a big fan of transparency with kids and talking to kids about their motivations. And when my kids get really mad at me when I, you know, make them do something on their own that I could I could very easily help them with, I explain that part of my job is to help them be the kind of people who can do stuff for themselves. And when it comes to the grading stuff, you know, I, I talk to them about the fact that we don't use sticker charts or money for grades because I don't want to teach them that Number Like with sticker charts, what we teach kids with sticker charts is to only do the right thing when people are watching and you're going to get credit for it. And I want my kids to be the kind of people who are good people when people aren't watching. I want to teach them, you know, that we do the right thing all the time, not just when we're going to get, you know, a sticker or a dollar for it. And that if I teach them that their learning is comes in the exchange for money, when, what we're teaching kids is that we care – more about those sort of letter grades, because that's what we're giving them the money for, yes. than the actual learning itself. And I want, especially when one of my kids comes up against something that they're not naturally good at, um, I don't want to, if they come home with a low grade, I don't want them to feel like they, they are stupid or they have failed or they can't do this thing because, and now they're not going to get money for it. I want to have that conversation always be about, you know, what do you need to do to be better at this? Because if it doesn't come naturally to you, this is an incredible opportunity to learn a little bit about, you know, how you can become more competent in this subject, how you can stick with it and learn a little bit of persistence. Because topics are going to get, learning gets hard for everyone eventually. Yes. You know, I, I use the analogy of math. Math gets hard for everyone eventually. And I really worry that when a kid gets their first F, you know, whether that's in freshman year of college or whatever, that they'll just fall apart and say, oh, my gosh, no, this this isn't for me, and, you know, I'm not going to get the reward for this. I want them to think, okay, well, this is hard for me. What do I need to do in order to do better? How, how do I do better moving yeah. forward? And when we don't give money to kids for their grades, part of what we're saying is you – didn't meet our expectations. This, whatever you just did this past semester is worth nothing to us. Um, and therefore, you get no money for it. I think we're setting them up to only value the experience of learning when it results in the reward for the high grade. And, and that sets kids up to avoid things that are hard for them. Because, well, why would you want to learn something? Why would you want to put effort out for something that um, you're not going to be naturally good at and get rewards for, right? I want my kids to embrace things that are going to be a little bit difficult for them, even if they're not going to get a dollar or $20 or $100 or whatever at the end of it. Yeah. No, that, that makes total sense. Just being able to talk more with the kids about it and have more conversations. I must admit, having your book has really helped when I've been talking to my friends because I've been able oh, to I'm say, glad. you know, have a look at this. And this is where I've been thinking about my things. And so they've been able to have a look and listen to what you've had to say. Well, that, what that's been part of the, the hard part for this is I, I have a lot of parents come up to me <clears throat> after my talks and say, 
look, I'm on board, but I, I don't want to be the first one to step back <laughs> yes. because everyone will think I'm not doing my job or the teachers will think that I'm, you know, not being a caring enough parent or my kids will think I don't care enough. Um, you know, my friends will think that I'm just, you know, throwing my hands up and, and not doing my job. And, and I think we're each other's worst enemy where that's concerned. And we feed each other's anxiety about, oh, my gosh, am I doing enough? Do my kids go to enough lessons? Is my kid achieving enough? Is my kid on the traveling yes. soccer league? And yes. if we could just support each other a little bit more and help each other. Um, I was talking to a mom just recently who was was talking about giving up her job, her work, so that she could pay more attention to her kids' education. And you know, I, I said, be really careful with that because it's really important for our children to understand that we have a life outside of them because yes. I hear anxiety all the time from kids about feeling like, oh, my gosh, my parents' whole entire life is me, and if I let them down, that they'll be destroyed. Oh. You know, it's it's really important for kids to see that we have stuff besides them. And and if we can support each other in as parents in uh in knowing that, I think that you know that that'll do that'll go a long way toward um, helping people step back a little bit. Well, you've spoken to a lot of kids compared to many of us parents that are listening right <laughs> now, um, and you've got to hear their innermost fears. And because you're yeah. not their parent, you get to hear what they have to say. Can you share something that they have said yeah. to you that you know that we would want to know if if we only knew? Yeah, I actually, when I talk to kids, and I talk to many, many thousands of kids a year, um, tens of thousands of kids a year, and I always ask them, you know, either I give them, I give all of the students I talk to my email, my direct email address, and I say, you know, email me before I talk to your parents tonight at our community presentation, um, and tell me, what do you, what do you want your parents to know? And I won't use any names, I promise. Uh -huh. And I get the most amazing <laughs> emails and comments from them, and Mostly that comes down to, could you please tell my parents I'm doing my best and I can't be perfect? I'm just, oh. I'm not perfect and I, I can't be. I get a lot of, could you please tell my parents that I don't need a tutor in every single subject just because everyone gets their kids a tutor in every subject so that yes. it makes me feel stupid. I get a lot of, could you tell my parents that I'm trying really hard but I can't be my big brother or I can't be my big sister or whatever sibling, you know, yes. things come easily to. Um, and then I just a lot of comments about this overwhelming feeling of anxiety that they can't live up to the image that their parents have of what they're supposed to be and that their parents don't actually know them very well. And that's, that's the part that makes me so sad. And, and the part that for me is so gratifying, you know, I get a lot of letters from parents saying that, yeah, my ki their kid is more competent once they learned how to sort of step back and give them more autonomy. But it's the letters that I get where parents say, you know what, my, my um, kid is more competent, but the best part is that my relationship with my kid has improved, and I feel like I know them better now. And that's what kids really want is to be seen, to be known, and not to be sort of the measure of their parents' parenting skills. Um, yes. You know, kids are, kids are not a measure. They're not our report card. Yes. They're their own people. So I think exactly. that's what they seem to want. Yeah, that's, whew, it's kind of, yeah. it's big. It's big when yeah. you say it like that. It's 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a joke among teachers that parent-teacher conferences, there aren't just, if it's just with a parent and a teacher, there aren't just two people in the room. There's the parent and the teacher, but then there's, like, the parent's image of what they want their kid to be, the idealized kid. And then there's the parent, you know, when they were in high school and wanting to make sure they rectify everything (laughs) so that their kid didn't have to experience what they did. And, you know, there's a lot of people in that room. And the, the interesting thing is that a lot of kids say, you know, my parents seem to think that I'm person X, but I'm not. I'm person Y, and um, I'm just afraid to show them that because I'm afraid of, you know, uh, disappointing them. Yeah. Well, that's good food for thought to really think about and and to be able to even start having maybe those types of conversations with our own kids um, to see what they say. You talk about autonomy and to quote you, to you, (laughs) autonomy supportive parenting tends to strengthen bonds between child and parent, whereas controlling practices weaken them. What do you mean by autonomy supportive parenting? So autonomy supportive supportive parenting means that um, you're supporting your kid in, I I use the, the analogy with toddlers a lot. So when it's cold outside, you don't say to a toddler, do you want to wear a hat? You say, (laughs) do you want to wear the red hat or the blue hat? But you give them buy-in. You offer, you know, some control over the details that, you know, why not? Because that's going to, you know, why not give them control over the details? Because that will get buy-in. So when kids have more ability to pick their classes, to decide where and when and how they do their homework, to, you know, have a little bit more control. It not only um, gives the message to the kids that we trust them and that we think they're competent, but it also increases their buy-in. And parents who are really super controlling about every detail of their kids' lives, don't. There's, the problem is, is that especially older kids are supposed to be doing this process of what's called individuating from us, becoming their own people. Yes. And kids who are more controlled, um, it's really clear in the research, they lie to their um, parents more because they feel like they need to because they have to make some space for themselves. So, you know, I would rather have a kid who doesn't feel like he needs to lie to me and a kid who feel like, feels like he has some control over the details of his homework and his social life and stuff like that so that, there will be greater buy-in. Um, for example, actually, the town that we live in doesn't have a high school, so the kids have to decide where they want to go to high school. And there are two high schools that our kids have been deciding between, and they're they're both a pretty good fit. I have opinions about which one <laughs> would be yes. a better fit, but you better believe I'm going to let my kid make the final decision between these two high schools because a high school that he has chosen and he is there because he knows it's his decision to be there, he is going to be more invested in that experience right. than if I choose for him. Right. And, and at, it turns out the research is also saying the same on uh, learned helplessness. Kids, kids that are helpless, kids that feel helpless, kids that feel like they have no control over their world, the way we help them feel more powerful is by giving control back to them. Um, The research on that is really clear too. So giving kids autonomy, a little bit of control over the details of their lives can pay off in our relationships. It can pay off in their honesty. It can pay off in their investment. And it can pay off just in their feelings of competence in the world. I like the way you said little bits in, and it takes time to do that because I think sometimes yeah. autonomy can be seen as just letting everything go, you know, going the complete no, opposite no. direction. Yeah. And that's not yeah. what you want at all, especially if you've had a very controlled 
um, existence. You know, you've parented right. in a way that's been very um, boxed <laughs> in, and mm -hmm. then you can't go to the opposite end. You might have to do what? Some teaching and sharing right. of how to do that so that they feel supported. You're not just going to drop them in the big ocean of, you know, right. choose and your school. And that's why the, the term is autonomy supportive. I mean, you're there. You haven't, like, left them alone. You're, you know, you're there to help them if they really, really need it. But you know, think of yourself more as sort of a guide as opposed to, you know, the person who has to step in and do everything. And it's also, you know, important. I, I never want to rip the rug out from under kids without an explanation of what's going on. And so if, you if you're going to suddenly, you know, give up some of the control over, I don't know, homework, for example, you have to make your expectations really clear and, you know, the consequences really clear so that kids feel like, okay, I know where the rules are because rules – and, and limits are comforting to kids. They really are, from toddlers all the way up to, to teenagers. And testing those rules is part of what they do to make sure the rules are still there. Yes. And so when we are, you know, show them, yep, this is still my limit, <laughs> this is still our rule, this is still yeah. our expectation, that is actually reassuring to them. And that's part of being an autonomy supportive parent too. Excellent. So the, we usually do positive things that we can do, and I want to see if you can tell me two things that we can stop doing that will actually support our children. One thing I know that I did was not to keep looking at that parent portal all the time, <laughs> see, and that has helped what my sanity, and I think it's helped the kids. Um, when yeah. I first read your book, you know, I was like, okay. I can do that. So what, what would you say, maybe one or two things that parents can stop doing that will actually support their kids? Yeah, the portal's a good one. Yay you <laughs> for starting there. Um, so always for me, the starting place is always to start thinking more long-term about your parenting and not exist in these everyday emergencies. Because there are emergencies almost every day, especially if you have multiple kids. I have a friend, one of my closest friends has four kids, and there is an emergency almost every yes. single day. Yes. And it's really easy to focus on those daily emergencies and have that be the test of your parenting. But actually, if you think about it in terms of, okay, so the emergency today is that my kid forgot his backpack and doesn't have any of his books or whatever. I could take that um, backpack to him today, or I could think about the fact that in six months I want to be in a position where forgetting the backpack just isn't something that happens anymore because he has a strategy for remembering it. Right. So thinking you know, six months ahead, a year ahead, where do I want my kid to be five years from now? That's really important, and I even say that to my kids. I say, you know, the reason I'm not going in that store with you to return that shirt that you bought is because I don't want to still be doing that a year from now. You know, this is my opportunity to teach you how to do that yourself. So think long-term instead of short-term. Take a breath. Say, okay, what are the lessons that are possible here in this emergency um, if I look at this from a more long-term perspective? And then, again, think about the process over the product. I mean, if the process of learning or becoming a better athlete or whatever that thing is, if you can keep your conversation and your focus on the process, then you can have these kind of conversations like, you know, I was really proud of you for sticking with that math problem that was clearly really frustrating to you. That's what makes me proud of you because I really do care about the learning. 
modeling our own response to um, to things that frustrate us um, is going to be really important too. I guess that's three things. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> modeling, modeling, modeling what we want to see in our kids. You know, um, a real interest in learning and a real interest in becoming um, smarter people by trying things that are outside of our comfort zone, by being brave emotionally and intellectually. That's also going to help them believe us when we say words like, I really care about the learning because yes. they know that, yeah, we say that, but what we actually care about are the grades because we hang them on the refrigerator and we call grandma <laughs> and we harp about the difference between an A minus and an A. So think long-term instead of short-term, think process over product and model what it is we want to see in our kids. Excellent. Where can parents follow up with you and find out about what you do? Well, you can always find everything at jessicalahey.com, and there's links to my journalism. I had a column at the New York Times for three years about called the Parent-Teacher Conference, and that's there, and I'm at the Atlantic, um, and, and all my speaking stuff is there. You can find me on Twitter at, at Jess Leahy, and uh, Twitter is a fantastic place, especially for educators to be. I love it there. And uh, you can find me on Instagram at, at Teacher Leahy. Excellent. Well, I've been talking to Jessica Leahy. She's an educator, writer, speaker, and author of The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. I'm so happy that you were able to share your information. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Anytime I get to talk about learning, I'm, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> cool. I'll be right back after this short break. You guys, it was fun being able to interview Jessica Leahy right away when I saw her book tour was coming to the next day over. I asked a friend if she fancied a road trip. We left the families and got to see her. Seeing her speak live was so cool with the other parents and teachers. She's funny, down to earth, and she knows her stuff. I got my book signed as well. Look out for her tours. They are so worth it for practical ideas statistics to be able to support what you're doing and finding your people doing this new thing. My boys were answering a written question the other day that I really loved as a reflective question. In a time when I've noticed school-aged kids learn, test, want to know the grade and then move on, there's not always time given over for reflecting and looking back. I know Jessica mentioned this in the show with talking about what you did to get the good result you got than just celebrating with an external gift. I loved this question because of the conversations that happened afterwards and the insight they gave. It's a really vulnerable question and the answer that they give is so specific for your child. So I wanted to share it with you today um, for you to maybe try it out with your kids being you know, age specific. Um, okay, here's a question. The lessons that we take from failure can be fundamental to later success. Recount an incident or time when you experienced failure. How did it affect you? And what did you learn from the experience? Well, that's kind of a big question. And I'm so glad that it was a written question because they got a time to really kind of chew over it and think about it. Um, and they wrote this question completely independently of my husband and I. They just wrote what they thought and they got to kind of express their feelings. But we, we read what they wrote um, before they, they, they handed it in, of course. But being able to identify weaknesses and strengths isn't easy. But if we talk about it more, it makes it much easier for the kids to be able to talk about it too. 
we have to be honest with ourselves when we see a question like that and that's kind of vulnerable. Both of my kids shared stories that we hadn't ever heard before and what we learned about them and what they had learned made us smile that our boys are growing up. There's a lot of end of year type interview questions that are around. You can search on Pinterest um, around the you know, questions that you may be asked at the beginning of the school year and then you ask at the end of the school year. But see if you can find a reflective question or two that you can ask about how the school year has been for them. I think it's really valuable to be able to reflect on what went well and celebrate what went well by talking about it. What would you do differently? Because I'm sure there are many things that if you had known, you might have done it slightly differently. And, and sometimes if you have siblings, they can talk to each other about things, uh, let them know things to look out for. And, and also because the kids know their brothers and sisters. There's things that they think, oh, that would be really good for them when it comes to their time to be able to do as well. And also maybe a lesson that they've learned. Maybe they've realized that they really should contact the teacher when they have a problem straight away and not wait for ages or ask for help or they realize that they need to stand on their own two feet more and not ask for help. I don't know. There are just the ability to be able to reflect is such a hard thing if you've not practiced it. So this was a really cool way that I hadn't seen before of being able to kind of talk some of these things through, hear a few stories or two and learn a little bit more. So really look out for a reflective question like that. So you can see we had lots of feelings about learning, the school years, grades, autonomy supported parenting, the reflective end of year questioning. And I know that many of you do too. You have feelings, thoughts, questions, ideas, swimming around thinking like, ah, I've got these things I want to do. Make sure you share your thoughts with us about this episode on social media using the hashtag GNFSAK, which is Growing Nimble Family School Age Kids. And make sure you tag our, our accounts. I know Jessica has an account on Twitter and you can find us on Instagram and Twitter as Nimble Families and on Facebook as Raising School Age Kids. Or share your ideas in the Facebook group, The Society of Nimble Parents. Be sure to see the show notes with links to Jessica Leahy and the other things that we've mentioned in the show. If you go to growingnimblefamilies.com forward slash 210210. Please continue to share the love for the podcast by sharing your friends, texting those who you think should listen. And if you listen on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts or Google Play, please consider leaving a review. Thanks for being here today. I know there are many things that you could be doing right now and I'm glad you've chosen to be here today. See you again next time. Goodbye.